So I'm thinking I'm going to take all the crosses down and I'm going to paint a picture of Xi Jinping and just be ahead of the curve. Exactly. Because in China, you have to do that. You know, you see all those movies and stuff and they always have a picture of the Nazi leader or Mussolini or whoever on the wall, you know. In China, it's true. You have to have a picture of Xi Jinping or Mao Zedong in your, you know, and you can't have a, like you couldn't have a Bible verse or a cross or a picture of Jesus, whatever that looks like, on your walls. So you have to take it down and put a picture of Xi Jinping on. <laughs> Not in China, I'm guessing. Um, and that's the way it's going to be here. So I'm just going to beat the curve and and do it. Maybe they'll send me a check. <clears throat> I want to read you something from the uh, Viceroy of uh, Victoria, Australia. I don't know what his position is. He's like the governor or the president or the main poobah. So I think he uh, said this yesterday. I know that today is a tough day for Victorians with news that the state will face increased restrictions as it battles to get on top of the COVID-19 outbreak. From tonight, Melbourne will enter stage four restrictions for six weeks with a curfew for Metropolitan Melbourne in effect from 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. And regional Victoria will also enter stage three restrictions from midnight on Wednesday. Australians all around the country are backing you in because we all know for Australia to succeed, we need for Victoria to get through this. These measures are regrettably necessary given the high rate of community transmission in the state. The new lockdown restrictions came into place Sunday at 6 p.m., 9 a.m. BST, whatever that is. Exercise will be restricted to once per day for one hour. One person at a time will be allowed to go shopping for essentials only. Residents will not be able or be allowed to travel further than five kilometers, which is 3.1 miles, from their homes while these measures are in place. So this is for six weeks. Schools will also return to home learning and regional Victoria will be under stage three restrictions from Thursday, which will force the closure of cafe, uh, cafes, restaurants, and gyms. And if I could have figured it out, I would have uh, had him say it because in his Australian accent, somebody said to me, I thought it was comedy. I thought, it, you know, what's the joke? So keep in mind, Australia to date has had 266 COVID-related deaths and 11,000 hospitalizations. That's the whole country, not just Victoria. On a normal, like last year's flu season, there were 960 deaths and there were 310,000 hospitalizations. And they didn't feel it necessary to take any of these precautions. They've had, in Australia... They've had, you know, the big forest fires going on and burning half the country. They didn't need to take these restrictions. Nobody had to wear a mask, even though the country, you couldn't even breathe the air because it was all smoke. So this is 128th, 128th of the, pe the people that go to the hospital normally in a flu season. And it's 128th, so they're having to take these drastic reactions. So... 
if there's anybody alive who thinks this has anything to do with healthcare, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Overall death rate in Australia and most countries has dropped. Uh, in the United States, it was 7,542 per day in 1919, and now it's under 7,100 per day. So of course, we have to have all these restrictions. It'll look just like China. Xi Jinping will be on every wall in every house. Everybody will be wearing a mask, even you. Well, it is to get rid of people. Yeah, I know. It's, but the first thing to do is to get you under control. You have to be in a place where you will do whatever they say, no matter how stupid it is. Masks do nothing. Uh, countries that have no lockdowns do not require masks, have maintained open schools, have the lowest rates of COVID and COVID deaths. Norway, Sweden, New Zealand, Japan, Taiwan, Iceland, and some others. Never closed anything down, and they ha hardly had anybody die. Suicide rates in Eagle County are five times the normal, according to the Vail Socialist. Domestic violence is four times the normal. So Andrew Cuomo says of his new restrictions, he's now got checkpoints in New York. You can't go in or out without being checked and tested to make sure you're from there. He doesn't want anybody from uh, these others. If you're from Colorado, you can go, but it's one of the few states. Um, any other state, there's like 42 states that if you're from that state, you can't come into New York City. They test you and they send you back. So he says, and I quote, if I can save one life, I will be happy. So it's like that guy, what's his name? JP. J and it's, what's the show? Okay, Waking with JP. You've probably seen this. He's a comedian. And he does an excellent, excellent, excellent job of he takes all of the stuff you hear from the news and he translates it to automobiles. You know, we've had, we've had a, uh, an epidemic of people dying from automobile deaths. So this is what we're going to do. You know, we're going to limit your, your trips to, you know, this amount. Then we're going to, no, it's, it's, people are still dying. We're going to, you know, we're going to wind it down to, then you can't go more than a mile. Then you can, you know, you have to keep it under 10 miles. And then there's no course at all. You have to walk everywhere. Oh no, we can't walk because people are dying. And he goes through this whole thing, just using all the verbs and the phrases that you've heard from COVID. And it's utterly ridiculous, of course. It's stupid. I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke. It's, it's comedy. And it's really funny. But it's not funny because these are all the same words that these people are using to control us. Uh, Catalonia, Spain, New York, New York, Ecuador, Panama, most of Californians, 40 million people, Australia, have all been locked down in the last week. Well, Ecuador and Panama have been locked down for six months. You can't go outside. You can't leave your house. You can, in Ecuador, uh, depending on the last digit of your license plate, you can leave your home for one, one day a week for one hour. And if you go more than 10 miles, you'll be arrested. So one lady went to the store, didn't have what she needed. She went to the next one. It was more than 10 miles. They arrested her. Um, the, the verbiage in, in California says violation or failure to comply with this order is a misdemeanor punishable by fine, imprisonment, or both. California Health and Safety Code, 120295, and then a bunch of initials. Um, recently, and maybe you heard about this, the uh, LA Unified School Teachers Union, so all the school teachers for the greater Los Angeles area, which is, you know, 70 billion teachers, um, has said they will go back into the classroom if two conditions are met. Anybody want to guess? You know, clean classrooms, disinfectant, masks. Yeah, no kids. Nope, that the Los Angeles police be defunded and that charter schools be made illegal. So that clearly has, you know, I mean, all that to do with health. 
Uh, riots continue in 33 of the 35 cities that have a central bank of the Federal Reserve, which is interesting. All of these riots you're seeing are taking places in cities with central bank of the Federal Reserve, which is why the federal government feels like they need to defend them. Uh, the Federal Reserve are the technocrats that control your life. They control all the money, so they have all the power. They are apolitical, doesn't matter if they're Republicans, Democrats, Communists, or Socialists, they control you because they control the money. And that's, it's so far above Trump and Bozo Biden and, you know, we fight over those things, over those guys, you know, and that's just the kabuki theater. They're making it so you, you, you get the most narcissistic president ever running against the guy that's completely and utterly mentally deficient so that we can take our eye off the ball and don't realize that the technocrats of the World Bank and the Federal Reserve and all of those, those are the people running the show. So when you get to, uh, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter takes down every post within hours of anybody that doesn't say, in fact, they, according to uh, my friend L1 here, just took down JP somebody's, Sears's latest one because you can't be telling the truth and you certainly can't be poking fun at these people because this is serious. We have to knock this COVID down. Okay, there is no COVID, right? It's just the flu. It's no big deal. And it's far less than the flu is on a typical year. So hydroxychloroquine, bad. They take those down immediately. People being saved by uh, medical procedures, bad. Take those down immediately. Businesses opening, bad. Got to take those down. Sending kids back to school, bad. You got to take those down. So the only news the average person is getting is all the technocrat left-wing media hype. Just it's pre-programming to get us to accept whatever it is they're going to do. The vaccine and, you know, whatever's coming. And we'll just, you know, half the people, three-quarters of the people are just chomping at the bit to get in line to get this vaccine, even though it, there's a reasonable possibility they will die from it. Um, one incensed reader that I send stuff to, you know, I sent that thought for the day the other day. And fortunately, six of you called me and commented and said, thank you. And, you know, they agree or whatever. One of them sent me an email and said, stop this! in all caps. Okay. So we had to take them off the list because they didn't want to hear that Nancy Pelosi and all these people who said you can't have Governor Polis, as I suspect their problem, uh, he said you can't buy hydroxychloroquine in Colorado. He made it illegal to buy. So my comment, of course, is they're killing people. They are willfully murdering citizens of the United States. And some people don't by that, I guess. Okay. But fortunately, most of the time, nobody really comments on anything I say. So I never really know if anybody's out there or if anybody agrees or disagrees. But it was nice, the Lord knew that this lady would, this couple would, and you know, and I really don't care what people think about me. <laughs> I mean, I t try to tell the truth and what I believe is the truth. And I, you know, not always right, but I think I'm right more than I'm wrong. Um, but it, it's, it affects you, you know, when, when people say stuff like that, because you, you step back, or at least I step back and say, well, gosh, maybe, you know, did I go too far? Did I say something that wasn't true? Did, you know, whatever. And you start saying, well, 
you know, maybe I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be so harsh or I shouldn't tell quite as much of the truth. And that's how this cancel culture thing works. It just takes one person. You know, there's some fire department back east or something that was flying the, the uh, black, uh, not black, the blue, the flag like I've got, the, you know, with the thin blue line flag. They had the American flag on one side of the truck and the thin blue line flag on the other because an officer in their city had been killed. So they were honoring this officer. So they'd been up for two months. One person called City Hall and said they were offended by that. So they had to take down all those flags. One person. You know, the rest of the city was fine with it and honoring a fallen cop who was killed in the line of duty. But that's how it works. You know, and I just heard uh, yesterday that the, the whole Goya thing, you know, everybody needs to boycott Goya. And of course, there's all those videos that get taken down with eight, eight hours of people just showing rooms full of Goya stuff they went out and purchased, right? Goya is having a record year, fortunately. So they're, that's just a food manufacturer, Mexican food manufacturer. And he met with Trump, asked him to come because he's huge, you know, his company's huge. And just talk with a bunch of other big guys, you know, in, in that field or big business guys. And he came. And when he left, he had some nice words to say about Trump. So the left wing freaks out and says, you can't say any, nobody can say anything nice or true about Trump. So they started this boycott of his food company. And this food company gives $70 million a year in free food to poor and underprivileged people. They don't care about that. They don't care about you. They want you to die. You know, they just, they just, they want what they want. So fortunately, everybody who read that or heard that or was is incensed like we are and Nedra, you know, this is what one of the cool things about COVID. Now you just pick up the phone and say to the market, hey, why don't you box up all this stuff for me? And I'll pick it up at the door. And they do, right? You know. It's your place. And, and they, they're, you know, like 99% right. So it's like, oh, yeah, just send me all the Goya stuff you've got. We'll buy it. You know, give me one of everything. And enough people have done that, and they're having a record year. So that's kind of like I had six people respond positively and one respond negatively. Um, so I'm not changing my format. Okay, so the new normal, much to the chagrin of my daughter, who thinks I'm stir up too much trouble. I know, I know you say I stir up too much trouble, which is, you know, that's me. That's Dan. Yes, I did. I'm still not watching there. Are they? Nice. So Dan was saying there's two black guys in the NBA, was it? That would not take a knee. And I saw it on the news. I don't watch basketball anyway. And I certainly don't watch it anymore. But their jerseys are selling like wildfire. They're one and two. So if you find out who those people are, we'll broadcast it to all our millions of listeners. <laughs> Is there anybody on tonight? Okay, good. Um, but yeah, that's how it has to work. You know, we have to countermand there and then they'll quit doing it. Because if every time they say something like, oh, we've got to stop that, if we get together and buy it from them, and they become rich and famous and their businesses take off, maybe they'll stop doing that stuff. Probably not. Okay, so you probably saw the, that was a heck of a boom in Beirut. Did you guys see that? That was, that was awesome. I mean, that was a boom. 
you know, and there's all these people saying, oh, it's a mushroom cloud. It was, it's not nuclear, probably. Um, and it had all the red smoke after the mushroom cleared. So it probably was fertilizer. And what kind of moron stores 3,000 tons of fertilizer for six years in a warehouse that's a fireworks factory? Okay, that's just too stupid to believe. That couldn't possibly really be the story. So maybe it is. I mean, you know, people over there aren't always the brightest, you know, and they're... Yeah, yeah, I don't know. But the there are those people who look at those things who are saying, and I don't know that I disagree totally with them i mean there's no way for us to ever know but the technocrats the you know the people that are above the un that are above all the politicians that are above all the presidents of all the countries that are pulling all the strings that are making australia australia's president look like a complete moron for doing you know what i mean there's people pulling the strings and if if that's well i know that's true some people believe that this was just sort of a shot across the bow because Lebanon wasn't really going through the whole, let's close everything down deal. According to the technocrats, you need to shut your country down and destroy your economy. And don't worry, we'll send money, you know, you'll be fine. Um, so they get this magnanimous explosion that kills, what, 500 people so far? Injured 5,000 people? Yeah, they felt it in Cyprus, 180 miles. I mean, it was the guy who was, you've seen it. One of the guys filming it looked like he could have been two or three. He's just out filming the cityscape, you know. And then this building goes up, boom, and the cloud, you know, the mushroom cloud. And then the red thing goes through and you're like, and then all of a sudden the shockwave hits him and knocks him down. And, and, you know, if you watched it closely and you saw the shockwave go across the water, it was brutal that was as big a boom as you're ever going to get and is it possible that they're really that stupid sure of course it's possible but yeah this was 30 tons yeah and so you saw what 2,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate would do to that building Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it was a 3.5 earthquake on the Richter scale, wherever they measured it. I mean, it was it was a big boom. Well, it was right on the on the water. It was a warehouse on the water. So yeah, it was pretty much downtown, but it was on a little peninsula. Nobody does. Bomb making factory. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if any of it's true, but. I do know that there was a massive explosion, and I bet now, and right after that, what do you see? Australia folding, and even though their COVID deaths are only a quarter of the norm, and even though their hospitalizations are 128th of the norm, the next day they're like, oh, we got to do something. You know, and all over the world, countries are doing the same stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Why, Why do you need to destroy your economy over something that's, I mean, it's, you know, it's got a, what, 0.4, you know, fatality rate. You're, you're safer battling that than you are spending the weekend in Chicago. It's by far. Yeah, it's, you know, I said that in one of my posts before they took it all down. And all these people started arguing with me. So I just quoted the facts, you know, Chicago, 
right now is running 250 deaths per 100,000 people, which is like 50 times the COVID death rate. So you are much safer walking around without a mask in downtown California or Florida than you are spending the weekend in Chicago. But okay, that's neither here nor there. All right, now looky here, we've been talking about uh, sort of the book of Ruth and, and Genesis uh, chapter 24 kind of in tandem. And in the book of Ruth, remember you see Ruth who represents the Gentile bride because she's, she's a Gentile, she's a Moabite. And the story of, of Ruth is that, uh, you know, God is king and his two sons, Piney and some other weird name, not healthy, and his wife, Friendly, moved to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And I suggest it's a fam famine of the word, not a famine of bread. So they went, you know, and it's the same thing in Psalm 1. They went to look, and then they sat, and then they stayed, and then the sons got married, and the sons died, the father died, leaving Naomi, the mother, with the two daughters-in-law. So then she hears there's food in Bethlehem, which, again, I'm suggesting is not bread. It's the the bread of life. It's the food, you know, it's the show table show bread. It's the word. So she's going to head back. And they were property owners in Bethlehem. So she would need to redeem her property in order to get her position and her, you know, get, get her life squared away. So she takes, she doesn't take, Ruth insists that she goes back with her. And she has probably the second best line in scripture where she says, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge. Uh, your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. You know, your God will be my God. That's what we have all said, hopefully, <laughs> to the Lord. So she goes back. And then Naomi, the whole book is all of this uh, halfway cryptic stuff if, if you don't know the Old Testament. But she's giving her all these uh, things to do, go do this and doesn't really explain it. You're left to know why why she said that. And if you know anything about the Torah, you know why she said that. So anyway, she's walking her to a place where she's going to meet this cool surfer guy who owns this big village. And that's Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And she already knew that, that he was her kinsman redeemer. So the Gentile bride um, gets hooked up with the Jewish kinsman redeemer. And the Gentile bride is captive. I mean, the Jewish kinsman redeemer is captivated with the Gentile bride. And she does all the things to, in effect, ask him to take her to wife because she needs to redeem her mother-in-law. So that whole story takes place. And, you know, and all of those details are fascinating. We could spend an entire night on each of them we have in the past. They're great. So you, you wind up with, during the threshing floor scene, which is at night. Thank you for noticing that. So it's dark. Threshing floor. They're doing it by firelight. Uh, Naomi or uh, Ruth finds herself under the skirts of Boaz. So what she was doing, you know, this isn't a sexual thing. She was instructed to when he laid down to sleep, you know, he would have a blanket on to find him in the field because all the guys are in the field and then go to him and lift up the blanket at his feet and slip in, you know, sort of like feet to feet backwards. So he wakes up in the middle of the night, notices there's somebody under his blanket that he hadn't put there previously, and that starts this whole conversation. So he agrees, because that was basically her asking to uh, 
to take her to wife, to become the bride of the kinsman redeemer. So the whole book is all about this. And if we're the bride of the Messiah, we are, we're Ruth, we're Gentiles. We have no right to this, but this is the way it played out. And so Ruth and Boaz, the Gentile bride and the kinsman redeemer, go through all the hoops that are necessary, all the legal hoops that are necessary to uh, become betrothed. And then in the, you know, at the last season, you know, the cliffhanger. Um, but there's another kinsman redeemer that's closer and he has the right, you know, and everybody says, well, who's that? And I would suggest it's the Torah, but it couldn't do it because the Torah does not save us. The Messiah saves us. The Torah leads us there and can certainly uh, dictate how we should live and how we should think and all that. But it's the Torah can't save you. The laws can't save you, but the Messiah has to save you. So you get this picture of the Gentile bride who, who is us, I mean, without question, marrying the kinsman redeemer and they have a child and that child is then given to Naomi, the Jew to raise and to teach. It wasn't, you know, the Gentiles don't teach the child. The child has to grow up as a Jew, has to understand the Torah and all of the things that happened with, with Ruth and Boaz. So when you look through that, um, it's, it's a, it's a great, but I always say, if you, you know, if you're stranded on desert island, you have only one book of the Bible you can read. It should be this one. It's only four chapters. You could read it 10,000 times. It's awesome. If you know what they're talking about, but that's the picture. And that's why we're doing, or we're looking at Genesis 24, because it's essentially the same picture, but in Ruth, you get some additional information. And one of those is that Naomi, the Jew was redeemed through the marriage of the uh, Gentile bride and the kinsman redeemer. And that's always been interesting and fun. And, you know, that's how the Jews are saved is through this relationship of us, the Gentiles, with their Messiah, their kinsman redeemer. That's what saves the Jews. And that's always interesting and fun. But in today's uh, cityscape of events, where I think we are very close to the rapture, it takes on uh, new meaning. Because if, if the way that I, you know, I have been speaking and believe is, is going to happen, soon the rapture will come. Because all of the things that we're seeing happen after the church is gone. And we're seeing them now. So to me, that says the church is is leaving soon if the pre-tribulation rapture is true. But if you're a Jew, what that means is you're about to embark on this seven-year journey that you didn't, you didn't buy a ticket for this. You know, this, this is not where you want to go. There's going to be some good times, but as soon as they get the, the temple built, which will, they'll be joyous about this. This agreement will happen between this guy who's bringing peace to the world and, and I suggest maybe stopping the madness with the masks and the vaccines and the restrictions. And there's going to be somebody step up and stop all that and change, you know, and everyone's going to look at him like, Oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you. And he's going to broker a deal in the middle East. And he's going to allow the Jews to build their temple, which actually uh, Jared, what's Trump's 
somebody, Jared Kushner, has been in Israel for months trying to work this out. It's called the deal of the century. And it requires uh, Israel to give up things that they'll never give up. But if they do, one of the things is they might get their temple. So some might be willing to do it. So we'll see how that plays out. I suspect that won't, we'll turn it into nothing, but somebody is going to do that. There's going to be somebody that is able to quell all this. The violence will go away and the masks will go away. And nobody will be sick anymore. And, you know, and this guy will be, everyone will worship him. And we need to be gone by that because we don't know who the beast is. He, he comes after the church is gone is the way I read it. Now that's not the way everyone reads it. Um, but I think that's on the horizon. I mean, not like, you know, an hour from now, but it's coming. It could come in a year or two or a couple months. I mean, nobody knows. And we'll see that. Well, if that's true, and if the way I understand this is true, um, then we'll be gone. So we need to be awake and alert and recognize that the fields are white unto harvest and we need to be out there doing what we can do. We'll know. Yeah, we can read the signs, like repeating it for the millions in the home audience. Um, yeah, I believe that's true. And a friend of mine has started a group called the Issachar Group from our lesson, you know, a few weeks back. The men who understand the times. And basically that's what it is. And there are people that understand the times. And that was what I learned, um, you know, the Lord, I assume it was the Lord, because uh, dinner was real good. It probably wasn't bad taco. Was just putting all these pictures and these verses in my head that night. And, and I came to realize that um, because I'm frustrated that people don't listen, that people don't care, that people don't want to be interested in it. And that was the thing was there was only one tribe, one out of the 14 Issachar that was interested in those things. So I shouldn't be, uh, it doesn't matter. I'm interested and I'm going to continue to be interested and look into it and, and see. And if any of you want to go along with that ride, obviously you're, you know, you're welcome to come and, and share it. And if it just truly doesn't interest you, then, you know, or you don't believe it, that's fine too. Because most of the tribes didn't. Most of the people didn't. And today, most of the people don't. Most of the churches don't. Somebody was telling me that uh, Eric is at least talking about it. So good for him. They want their ears tickled. Exactly. And, you know, God loves you. That's the classic message from a big church because everybody wants to hear that. God loves you does not save you, though. They'll never tell you that. You know, God loves everybody, but not everybody is going to be saved. And he will he will regret those that chose not to be saved. But those are the ground rules. And if you choose that, you choose that. So we've been looking at Genesis 24, and it's the account of Rivka and Yitzhak. And remember, the father sent the spirit to find a bride for the son. And he sent the spirit back to his home country. So in effect, it's a Gentile bride. It's a bride from Babylonia. And, you know, it's not, not from the Canaanites, the promised land where he lived. He's, he sent the spirit and the camels. You know, the spirit, Eliezer, was, was in the place of the spirit, took the camels and the riches and went back. 
And um, you guys know that story. We've talked about that. And he makes the, throws this fleece out there for the Lord and says, look, if the lady who comes and does this, this, and this answers these and feeds my, or waters my camels, then this is, this is the girl. I'll ask and see. And keep in mind, uh, a well, remember the idea of a well? You look in a well and it's dark. And so you throw something down there in hopes that, you know, you're gonna, there's water down there. You throw your bucket down there and then you reel it up. And as it gets closer to the top, as the, as the time of the end draws near, then you begin to see it. And pretty soon you pull it up and you can see all my buckets full of water. I mean, you would have felt it. That's, that's this idea of a well. It's dark and it comes to light. And that's the same idea that, you know, we're living this way, right? We're living in the dark and it's getting lighter and lighter and lighter. We're seeing what's at the end. But... Rivka was very beautiful and apparently quite strong because she could throw this bucket into the well and reel it up enough time to, to water at least 10 camels. And a camel, if you know anything about camels, because I'm sure we ride them all the time, will hold up to 25 gallons of water. So she might have had to, to draw 200 gallons or more. And I doubt if the bucket was five, maybe it was, I don't know. But if it was five gallons, that's, that's heavy. You know, that's 35 pounds, right? Seven pounds of, so she's drawing up five gallons. So she's drawing it up, you know, a bunch to feed all these camels. So that was the girl, right? So, uh, and you know, the story, she does that. He does that. Everybody does what they need to do. He takes her back, meets uh, Yitzhak, Isaac, they get married, and then there's this weird thing because the whole idea of the father is seeking a wife for the son, so he sends the spirit and the camels or the law, sends the spirit and the law to find it and bring her back. And we have this uh, idea that, well, and it's you know not inconceivable, it's, it's exactly the way scripture says it. Because the father, uh, we're, we're called to return to the house of the father. So that's what this whole thing is about, right? He gets the Gentile bride, brings to the son, they get married and live in the house of the father. And then it says, let the newlyweds move in to that tent of Sarah. Which, I mean, physically speaking, it was right next to the other. It's not like it's, you know, off in another far country somewhere. They were logistically near. But the, but, but the fact that it even mentions that should draw your attention and it should, should say, well, what, you know, what's going on? Because that's not the picture that we get. So Genesis 17, uh, verse 15 and 16, it said, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and I will give thee a son also of her. Ye, I will bless her, and I will, uh, and she shall be the mother of the nations. Kings of people shall be in her. So think about who Sarah is and who she might represent. She was uh, kin of Abram. She was Babylonian. She wasn't a Canaanite. She wasn't a Jew. Well, there weren't any Jews yet. Um, and she, she alone is the blessing of the nations. It's through her that all the nations are blessed, the Bible will tell you, because she gives birth um, 
to Isaac or, and then we get Jacob and Jacob is Israel and Israel is us, right? The people who uh, are under the authority of God. So it's basically Judah and Israel. It's always Judah and Israel, Judah and Israel, the Jews and the Gentile believers, if you want to put it that way. So it's, it's, when you think it through, it's, it's not unusual, or maybe even you wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't be put off to find that she's in the, in the tent of Sarah, because Sarah, in some weird way, if you squint hard enough, is us, right? It's, it's, it's a picture of us. So, of course, this whole picture of the Gentile bride and the son and the and it's all one house. It's the same picture that we saw in the first word of Genesis 1-1, right? The, the first word, Bereshit, and remember how you could divide that up? It talks about um, God is the head of the house and the house he is building for his son, which implies a wife and a family and all that. So this is, uh, she's the blessing of the nations. And she's, and it's interesting, she's not the blessing of Judah. All of the Jews come from her, but it describes her as a blessing of the nation. So Genesis 24, 21, and this is, uh, this is Eliezer. It says, in the man wondering, and that word wondering is sha'ar, it's sort of like he's stunned into silence. He's, remember, he's cast this fleece out there. The girls have come to water the camels and stuff, and he's waiting. He's just, he's holding his breath. He can't wait to see what the Lord does. So the man wondering at her held his peace to wit, which is the word yada, which we talk about all the time, to know in, a, in an intimate sense. He knows the, the, the Lord in an intimate sense. Whether the Lord has made his journey prosperous. And it's this word of, um, uh, it's sort of, you can, it's sort of the same idea as pulling the water up from the well it comes from dark to light. It's the word for, you've got a bowl of food and you're almost out of food. You like, push your bread in and you push the rest of the food up. You get, you get the stuff that's at the bottom of the bowl so you can eat it. It's, you're bringing to the top the stuff that's at the bottom. So, and the man was wondering at her, held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Because he'd done all he could do. He'd gone all this way. He'd thrown the fleece out there and he's just waiting. And he's like, <gasps> you know, what's going to happen? And in a sense, that's how we are, or at least I am, with this whole rapture thing, you know, it, it's every day, it gets worse and worse and worse, which is better and better and better, right? And it's better and better and better, certainly spiritually, but it's also better and better and better if you're into crypto or if you're into gold or silver, because all this stuff is skyrocketing, because all these guys know that the world is heading to a place that uh, nobody wants it to be. So the world, the worse the world is going to get, the more certain investments would, you know, and you would expect this would get better. And the rate at which they're getting better, if that's any reflection of how fast the world is getting bad, it's stunning. Okay, so <clears throat> Eliezer is like, what's the spirit going to do? And I think to myself, I wonder what the spirit thinks of us. Because he already knows the end from the beginning and what's going to happen. And 
all that, but he's looking at us probably just shaking his head. It's like, wow, these people, they're not getting it. They don't have the faith. They're not trusting this. Why can't they just relax? You know, this is all going to be good. I just picture, and I don't know if this is true or not. It's probably blasphemous even to say it, but it's like, I picture him up there just going, you know, like, get it together, you guys. So, and that's, you know, sort of, we're down here like Eliezer holding our breath. What's going to happen next? And the Spirit's just going, oh my gosh. Okay, Genesis 4, uh, 24, 22. And it came to pass that as the camels had done drinking, that man took the golden earring, which is the golden earring of a bond servant, typically, of half a shekel weight, which is, that everybody would have to pay half a shekel as the census, and two bracelets, and of course it's always two, you know, it's uh, good seed, bad seed, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of the world, Jew, Gentile, spirit and truth, law and prophets, it's always two. So he takes two bracelets of 10 shekels, uh, and 10 of course is a smaller picture of a larger hole. There's, this is just a tiny fraction of the offerings the Lord has for the, the gentile bride and if we're the gentile bride we we need like uh, there's a couple of old time guys that were so good at this talking about the riches to be found in the messiah you know the riches of christ and they, they have written books and books and books and you read these and they're just so compelling that the riches of christ is described in scripture is so compelling why would anybody not choose that path and that's what this is a picture of. These 10 shekels are a smaller portion of a larger hold. So 10 shekels is a weight of gold. And gold, of course, is deity. So verse 23, and, and this is Eliezer to Rivka, and whose daughter art thou? Tell me, pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? Well, who's the us? We don't hear about anybody but Eliezer. Now, obviously, Eliezer had a troop of men with him, and they were all on camels. But what we hear about is Eliezer by himself on 10 camels. He brought 10 camels because they're all loaded down with the goods of the master so that they can, you know, show some of the goods of the master. So this us is Eliezer and the camels. Well, Eliezer is representing the spirit, and we don't know his name. They never mention his name, but we know who he is. Eliezer is the spirit, and the camels represent the Torah. So think about what he's saying. He says, is there room in your father's house for the spirit and the word of God? <laughs> Somebody kill that fly. <clears throat> so, and, and you don't have this one. Revelation twelve seventeen. it talks about um, the seed of the woman, the, 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 the people that are going to be with the Lord, these are the people who both keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus. And that's the spirit and the law. So Eliezer is asking the Gentile bride, is there room in your house for the spirit and the law? And her response is, uh, well, you know what her response is. It's basically a call to salvation if you read it that way. In, in verse 24, she, she, and she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. And more, moreover, she said unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. So if he's asking her, is there room in your house for the word and the spirit? 
And she's saying, yes, there is room in the house. So we know from the account, she takes off running home. So if, if any of you can remember back when you were first saved <clears throat> and how exciting that was, you wanted to tell everybody. You know, you would naturally, you would take off running home and tell your parents who didn't want to hear any of this. As far as they knew, you'd be better off, at least in my house, if you were out fooling around. You know, this is this this whole God thing. This is there's something wrong here. We gotta we gotta straighten this kid out. But that's what you do when you first save. You want to tell everybody, and that's kind of the picture we see of this Gentile bride, right? Of Rivka. She accepted his offer of salvation. She said, "Yes, absolutely. There's room in my house for the law and the prophets, or for the the spirit and the and the law." So in verse 26 and 27, and the man, this would be Eliezer, bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master of Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So he recognizes that this whole thing was orchestrated from the Lord. And if you remember, he used the word bear for well, because that is the word for bear, for digging a hole. And that's typically the word for well. Then he switches to the word ayin, which is not the word for well. It's, it's this word, it's, it's the word for I. It's, it's as though the Lord is looking down on all this and he's orchestrating all this. And he, that's what he did. And that's what he's praising the Lord for. He, he knows the Lord orchestrated this. Let him, because he's going a thousand miles or 800 miles or however far it is with a camel and no compass. Siri's not on the job yet, right? So how does he get to the exact right well in the exact village in the exact place he needed to be? Well, he recognized it was the Lord and the Lord led him to this Gentile bride who wanted to be married to the son of the father. And this is, this is a working of the Lord. He saw that. It's this iron. Um, but that's us. When we think about she's another picture of this Gentile bride, you know, it's a great story and we can see all the pictures and stuff, but recognize that's us. We're the Gentile bride. And the Lord has orchestrated it so that each of you are here tonight or wherever the Lord has you to be, that you are seeking after the things of the Lord. You want to know what the Lord has for you. You want to see the, the word and the spirit. You want to see the riches of the Lord. And all these guys for the last 2,000 years have written these, these fabulous uh, books about the riches of the Lord and how it's just, it's, you know, an entire book is spent describing these riches, you know, Tori and I don't know, there's a bunch of guys. And you, you hear this from pastors all the time, although you don't necessarily know the guy's names, but that's where they've been reading this stuff. Because when you read it, it's, it, it, it does something to your heart as they describe the, the riches of the Lord in these 18th century English words. And then you try to communicate that with your, you know, your millions of people here. And you can't, it's just, you can't adequately project what it means. We all have to come to that on our own, in our own situation, our own lives, whatever happens to each of us, we have to see these riches of the Lord, just like Rivka did. And she saw them and she accepted them. And it's interesting that word uh, that's translated as truth is the word ameth. It's A-M-N, Aleph, Mem, Noon. 
and amn amn it's where we get amen right so this idea of truth every time we say amen what we're really saying in hebrew is that's true that is the truth so don't just be throwing around your amens okay uh, moving on to verse 55 and 56 and her brother and her mother said let the damsel abide with us a few days, at least 10. After that, she shall go. And he said, just again being Eliezer, and he said, hinder me not, seeing the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And that's exactly how the world works, right? We get something just unbelievable. Somehow the Lord has found us and brought us to him. And we see things we never saw before. And we, we come to the Lord. And yes, Lord, there's room in my house, in my heart for your word and your spirit. And we go running to our parents, our friends, our teachers, whatever. And the first thing that happens is they're going, oh no, not this again. Just chill out. Let's just chillax for a couple of weeks here and this will blow over. Well, <laughs> hopefully there's somebody in our lives like Eliezer and says, hinder me not. You know, and I suspect we're all sitting here because we've all had that experience. And we've said in one way or another, hinder me not. I'm going. I'm going to find the spirit and the word, and that's going to guide my life. And we did to some degree or another, you know, and sometimes there are issues. And, you know, I mean, but this is the way of the world. They're holding out for more gifts or, you know, they want a, a, a richer dowry or who knows why people and and you see this all over the I mean if you're unfortunate enough to turn on the TV and watch the news and stuff and I I totally don't believe there's any difference between the Democrats and the Republicans they're all just puppets of somebody up higher but you see this they're they're try, and they're doing it right now they're trying to dissuade you with whatever they can to get rid of this whole god thing I mean this is just crazy let's just close the churches down Oh, sure, the rioters, no, that's fine. You know, and, and, and the pot shops, oh, yeah, that's, and liquor stores, those are a necessity for sure. But churches, they're not, you know, they're not essential. And if you do go to church, make sure you wear a mask and you don't sing, because we don't want anybody at church knowing you. We don't want any socializing. We don't want anybody, you know, heart to heart, God loves you stuff. That's got to go. That's not realistic. What's real is this COVID, and it's going to get you. And it's going to kill you. Okay, even though it doesn't. We need this more than we need that. If they want to come and shut down the entire world, fine. And you can always come here and you don't have to wear a mask and nobody's going to get sick and we have good food and fabulous worship until they come in here with guns blazing. And, you know, and that's fine too. Because the reward is... Awesome. So Eliezer said, in effect, to Rivka, today is the day of your salvation. And I would suggest to you that the, the actual physical day of our salvation, our transportation, is soon. And it's a year ago, I would have said, oh, yeah, it's soon. You know, 10 years 200 years, I don't know. It's, it's coming. This year, I would say it's, it's soon. It's, 
it could be months or a couple of years, maybe. I mean, it's soon. Genesis 24, 57 and 58. And they said, we will call the damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebecca, Rivka, and said unto her, will you go with this man? And this is probably what I think is the best verse in the Bible. And she said, I will go. And that's the, the same thing you've said. <clears throat> at some point, somewhere, somebody asked you that question in a way, will you go with this man? And you said, yeah, I'll go. I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. That's what the disciples said. Who else has the answers to life and truth? Nobody does. He does. Of course I'll go with him. And she knew that, and Ruth knew that, and Naomi knew that. And Boaz was that. He was the picture of that guy. But notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, can I come live with you? Can I move into your house? Bless you. It's your allergy to the Bible. It's a good teaching. <laughs> so he never says that, but that's always the way we treat him. Oh yeah, God came into my life, came into my, you know, it's like, yeah, not really. You need to join him. He's not coming here to join you and make things better. There's a, and remember Joshua, the guy appears in front of Joshua with the sword and he says, are you for, for us or for our enemies? And he says, no. What do you mean? No. He says, I'm here for the Lord. I'm not here for the Republicans or the Democrats. I'm not here for the UN or the technocrats. I'm here for the Lord. You join me. And that's the way it should be with us. Okay. So it's interesting that the idea of um, the Gentile bride marrying the son of the father is a blessing to all the nations. And the, the, the way that I, because it's, it's hard to explain why, well, I mean, I can explain it. It's not that hard. It's hard for a lot of people to understand why would the Lord send seven years of tribulation if he's already pulled his church out? Because that doesn't really make sense. Because we know the character of the Lord does not include punitive punishment. He doesn't just... Uh, uh, jerk people around because he can. He's not a politician. There's always a plan. <clears throat> so Revelation 21, 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This idea of the bride is, is important. And Paul adds to all this stuff that we, the Gentiles, this Gentile bride, the Rivkas and the Ruths, and I would suggest all of us, our job is to make the Jews jealous. Because the Jews have, have all the Torah, they got all that part, but they've missed the Messiah. They've missed a relationship with the guy who wrote the Torah. And that's our job, because we have that relationship but we don't know all the stuff about the Torah that they know. So, and I've suggested this before, I don't know if it's true or not, I hope it's true, that the church will be raptured, taken to his side or his feet, and for seven years, he will teach us the Torah, right? He will teach us all the things that we don't know. But our joining him in the air, our disappearing from this place, our being the bride 
is enough to make the Jews jealous. And some will want to know how that happened. How did they miss the boat? And the tribulation will come and it will offer them an opportunity to get, get back on the boat. Not a particularly pleasant way to get there, but some will come to know that they've missed the most important thing in the entire history of history. They've missed the most important thing in the universe, and that's a relationship with the Messiah, with their Messiah. And they missed it, but we found it. And they'll want to join us. And they will. Many will. You know, many will hide uh, in Petra, Jordan. Many will be uh, beheaded. There will be, there will be many who will come. So the whole purpose of this seven years of, uh, of revelation, the, you know, the bowls of wrath and the, all of the stuff that's coming and it, billions of people will die. Billions of people. There's almost 8 billion people on earth right now. And a good majority of them will not make it out alive. So maybe 6 billion people die. And that's, I mean, how, how do you even, how do you even think about that? But the reality is that's God's grace and mercy. Because if he didn't do this, if he didn't offer this last seven years, if he didn't allow all these things to happen, the 2 billion that are going to be saved would never have been saved. The church would be gone and the doors would be closed and they would be, they would have missed it. They would have been those five virgins that missed it, but he's offering them one more way. And it's just like when we talk about uh, uh, world war two, you know, and you, you talk about 20 million people dying and 6 million Jews dying and what a horrific thing it was by anybody's account you know and most of those guys are gone but some of them we still know and you can get get the words directly from them you know about just exactly what it was like and it was not a fun thing it was a horrible thing and so many people say well, how could God allow something like that well God needed Israel he needed Israel to come back as a country and it wasn't that's how it happened that was the way to get it back so was it worth it? Well, you're saved, so I'm guessing it was worth it. Because if there was no World War II, there would have been no Israel. Where does that leave us? Where does that leave the Bible? Where does that leave the account of salvation? You have to have Israel. So it would have, I mean, it, it was a horrible thing. But it was God's grace and mercy that allowed it because it brought all of us and all of our, you know, parents and their parents, perhaps, that are saved. It brought them into a place where they could be saved. So, if, sure, 20 million people died. Nobody died on accident. Nobody died by mistake. Nobody died who was going to go to heaven but didn't get to. He already knew. Amen. <laughs> That's the way it is. So, all right. If, if you're Jewish and you're going to get married, uh, there's a protocol that has to happen. And most of you have probably know this, but basically it goes like this. The father selects the bride and the wedding sort of takes place. It takes place over a cup of wine and the, the bride and the groom are married. They can no longer uh, go see other people or do whatever it is people do before they're married. But the bride stays in her father's house and the groom goes to his father's house. And for a time, the, the groom is building a house attached, typically attached to his father's house, kind of like Sarah's tent was near the, the house of, a, uh, of her husband. 
And when everything is ready, he gets, he gets it all, you know, he gets it all done. It has to be dialed in because when this wife comes, everything has to be working. There has to be, you know, indoor plumbing and a air conditioned chariot. And, you know, the whole thing has to be ready to go because she's coming and we don't want to make a bad impression. And this could take, it often took a year or two. So the couple is, is actually married, but she's at her father's house and he's at his father's house. And often there was little or no communication between them because, I mean, they didn't have Facebook or, you know, Siri or iPhones. And often the distance was great. Perhaps they saw each other not again, but it wasn't like we would think of a relationship. And then once everything is ready and in place and the house is built and the corn is planted and, you know, the dog is chasing flies and everything is good, then when the father and only the father deems it ready, he tells the son to go. So what happens is the wedding party would get together with all their, you know, wedding party stuff, instruments and food and noisemakers or whatever, and they would head to the bride's house. Nobody knew the time. Nobody knew when it was. And they would just show up typically at night, typically in the middle of the night. And that's why you see the 10 virgins, the five had fallen asleep because it wasn't noon. They didn't show up, you know, on the Jerusalem expressway. It was, it was in the middle of the night and these people were sleepy and they missed it. So they show up at the bride's house and then the, the bridegroom follows them and the wedding begins. So the bridegroom and the bride um, together with the wedding party, they, they are about to have a big wedding and the bridegroom and the bride go into the, and I meant to get all the Hebrew words, but I forgot to do it the um, little tent of consummation and they spend a week together, you know, getting, because they don't know each other, right? They spend a week together getting to know each other and consummating the marriage and doing all the stuff that newlyweds do. They spend a week and then they come out of this, um, this tent and then the party begins. So all these people that were there, you know, they're, they part, I mean, they party for a week. It's, it's a big deal, you know, a wedding and, in those days was a, was a fun, I mean, they're fun now, but back then this was like a two, three week deal. And then they go back to the house of the father and they move into the house the son has built and they begin their life together. And you know, it's, that's, that's how it works. Well, that's exactly the, those are the details for us because if, if we're, we're, if we're the bride and we're waiting to marry the son, and we've already been betrothed, but we haven't, you know, the, the, the event hasn't happened yet. And then once the event happens, there's seven days, seven years of uh, getting to know each other before the party begins. That's exactly what we see in the book of Revelation and this idea of the bride and the Gentile, uh, Gentile bride and the, um, so anyway. So what has been on my heart uh, for the last few weeks is I, I assume and I teach and I believe that the pre-tribulation rapture account is true and it makes sense to me. But Andrea and Ruth Allen both can tell you in the last 20 years, I've made a number of mistakes. <laughs> I have not always been right. <laughs> I think I'm usually right, but this is, this is a big deal. This is a big thing. And 
what has been on my heart is to maybe go through because basically it's one of four things. It's a pre-tribulation rapture, which is what Calvary's teach and what I believe and I think what most of you believe. But recognize that something like 24% of professing Christians believe that. Most Christians do not believe that. Um, and it basically that's you know just what we talked about. The bride and the Messiah of the church snatched away to be with their Messiah in the air for seven years before he turns to earth. Um, and presumably those seven years are spent not just you know, just just kicking around, but learning stuff. A mid-trib um, belief is essentially the same, except we're taken at the middle of the tribulation instead of at the beginning. And the Bible is reasonably clear that the first three and a half years of the tribulation are not difficult. It doesn't say they're pain-free, but they're not that difficult. So this mid-trib rapture is essentially the same as a pre-trib, except the whole rapture thing is, is moved back. So we'll go through three and a half years, the first part of the book of Revelation. And then when the beast is revealed at the midpoint, we're, we're gone, just previous to that. Then post-trib um, is that there is a rapture, but it's at the end of the seven years that we, the church, the Jews, everybody goes through the entire book of Revelation, goes through all the tribulation, knows who the Antichrist is, sees him uh, command to be worshipped as God. Somehow we make it past all that and through all those uh, issues and we're not deceived. You know, Jesus said that the deceptions coming would deceive even the elect if that were possible. So the post-trib view is that somehow we make it through all that and then there's a rapture at the end of the seven years we go up with the lord and then immediately come right back down with him and the millennium begins and then amillennialism is the idea of um, that the bible in general is allegorical and you know and, and you when you read scripture and you find verses like uh, uh yeshua says he's the door or he's the bread of life. I mean, he's not, he's not a hinge. He's not a loaf of bread. So there's a certain amount of things in scripture that are, are allegorical. There's just no denying it. Then there's a lot of things that, you know, the Bible will say is a parable or an allegory or something. Uh, but they believe most of the Bible is allegorical and not literal. And certainly the book of Revelation is absolutely not literal. Those are all allegorical pictures and that the description of the things that uh, come, the you know the all of the bulls and wrath and all that stuff is happening now. It's been happening for two thousand years since the crucifixion of the Messiah, and those things are just pictures, allegorical, not even really in the order that we read them. That these things are going to happen, and then the end will come, and the Lord will come and we'll be, you know, we'll be with the Lord for the next thousand years. Um, so those are the four basic ideas. There's different flavors and uh, stuff to each one of those. But I guess I wanted to know if you wanted to know a better description of those things. I mean, do you want to understand the, because it, you know, it's, it's sort of a joke amongst people like me that if I'm wrong, 
then we just move to mid-tribulation. <laughs> and if that turns out to be wrong, then we move to post-tribulation. If that turns out to be wrong, then all my amillennialist friends were right, and we'll all have a big laugh at the end. You know, and, and that's true. If you believe one of, you know, if, you, if you're a mid-tribber, for instance, and we go pre-tribulation, they're going to be shocked. Or if you're an amillennialist and think we've spent 2,000 years living, which you can make a great case for, living in the things, you know, the bowls and the wrath and all that stuff, uh, and then we're suddenly taken away, they'll be just as surprised as the next guy. And it'll be fine. We'll all be there. You know, no harm, no foul. No big deal. I don't think anyone is saved or left because of their eschatology at the end. But I do think it makes a difference in the way that you conduct your life, the way you live your life. And as a pre-tribber that thinks it could come immediately, I mean, you may have noticed, I haven't spent any time fixing the front porch. Why? <laughs> You know, in two months, we're going to be gone. And then the wife says, well, what if it's two years? You know, we got to get the porch fixed. Fine, I'll fix the porch, okay? But it just seems like a waste of time, you know. Uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> But But each of us can think about the end, you know, how our eschatology plays out. And it does kind of affect the way you live your life. You know, and I'm struggling right now with the belief that cash is going to be gone and that the government is going to start uh, converting our bank accounts and our retirement and stuff. And, you know, what do I do? Because what if it is two years or 10 years or the Jews believe it's 220 years because in their calendar, we're at 5780. So it has to go to 6,000. And I've, I've had to assume that they've got the math wrong. You know, as long as I've been a Christian, I've had to assume that they got the math wrong. And I always, it's always in the back of my mind, well, what if they got the math right? Because I spend my life teaching the Torah is right. You know, what if they got it right? And it's 220 years. Well, that makes a huge difference in how you live, right? So all of a sudden now I'm looking at, well, what do I do with resources and money? And, you know, I mean, what do I do with all this? Because I see all this bad stuff coming. So what's the best stewardship, you know, that I could do if, in fact, I don't get raptured? And if I'm doing all this great stewardship and making all this money in crypto coins and gold and, and then I get raptured, no harm, no foul, you know, I'm gone, right? Who cares? Uh, but if it's not, if it's not even in my lifetime, I don't want to spend the rest of my life not, you know, blowing the resources that guy gave me. Because if I go out and, you know, talk to people and people get saved and, or people argue with me or whatever it is fine. It's, it's awesome. If they get saved, they're saved. You know, doesn't matter if we get raptured tomorrow or in 200 years. But so my question to you was, and to the millions of adoring fans outside, um, do you want to know? I mean, should I spend the time, because it would take two or three weeks going through all of these. And I have a good friend of mine, uh, just love him to death. He's been a friend of mine for 35 years, maybe. He's a professor at, I don't know, He's a college professor, smart guy. We got saved at the same time at Pebble Hill in Santa Barbara. And he, through his research, he came to believe amillennialism is the way to go. And if you're interested, I was thinking of having him. I mean, he lives in Georgia, so it's, I'm not going to have him here. But through the modern technology from the devil, I could have him here. Right? He could speak. And he speaks. Is anybody who knows what that knows about their eschatology that's competent in their eschatology can make a 
compelling case that they may be right. And he makes a great case that amillennialism could be correct. I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean, but anyway, that's the question. If any of you want to hear that, or if most of you want to hear that, I would endeavor to go as far as I could go and maybe have Patrick do, you know, a week on the, on the TV or something. If you want to know, I don't know. So you can let me know if you want to know.